Book One, Chapter Eleven of In Search of the Castaways. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rosanna Toronto. In Search of the Castaways or the Children of Captain Grant by Jules Verne. Book One, Chapter Eleven. Traveling in Chile. The native troops, organized by Lord Glenarvan, consisted of three men and a boy. The captain of the muleteers was an Englishman who had become naturalized through twenty years' residence in the country. He made a livelihood by letting up mules to travelers and leading them over the difficult passes of the cordilleras, after which he gave them in the charge of a bacchano, or Argentine guide to whom the route through the pampas was perfectly familiar this englishman had not so far forgotten his mother-tongue among mules and indians that he could not converse with his countrymen and a lucky thing it was for them as lord glenarvan found it far easier to give orders than to see them executed paganel was still unsuccessful making himself understood the catapaz, as he was called in Chilean, had two natives called Peans, and a boy about twelve years of age under him. The Peans took care of the baggage mules, and the boy led the madrina, a young mare adorned with rattle and bells, which walked in front, followed by ten mules. The travellers rode seven of these, and the catapaz another. The remaining two carried provisions, and a few bales of goods intended to secure the good will of the cacique of the plain the peons walked according to their usual habit every arrangement had been made to ensure safety and speed for crossing the andes is something more than an ordinary journey it could not be accomplished without the help of the hardy mules of the far-famed argentine breed those reared in the country are much superior to their progenitors they are not particular about their food and only drink once a day and they can go with ease ten leagues in eight hours there are no inns along the road from one ocean to another the only viands on which travellers can regale themselves are dried meat rice seasoned with pimento and such game as may be shot and rout the torrents provide them with water in the mountains and the rivulets of in the plains which they improve by the addition of a few drops of rum and each man carries a supply of this in a bullock's horn called chiffle they have to be careful however not to indulge too freely in alcoholic drinks as the climate itself has a peculiarly exhilarating effect on the nervous system as for bedding is it, it is all contained in the saddle used by the natives called ricado this saddle is made of sheepskin tanned on one side and woolly on the other fastened by gorgeous embroidered straps wrapped in these warm coverings a traveller may sleep soundly and brave exposure to the damp nights glenarvan an experienced traveller who now knew how to adapt himself to the customs of other countries adopted the Chile chilean costume for himself and his whole party paganel and robert both alike children though of different growth were wild with delight as they inserted their heads in the national poncho an immense plaid with a hole in centre and their legs in high leather boots the mules were richly caparisoned with the arab bit in their mouths and long reins of plaited leather which served as a whip the headstall of the bridle was decorated with metal ornaments 
and the alforna, double sacks of gay-colored linen containing the day's provisions. Paganel, distrait as usual, was flung several times before he succeeded in bestriding his good steed, but once in the saddle, his inseparable telescope on his shoulder-belt, he held on well enough, keeping his feet fast in the stirrups, and trusting entirely to the sagacity of the beast. As for Robert, his first attempt at mounting was successful, and that proved that he had the making in him of an excellent horseman. The weather was splendid as they started, the sky a deep cloudless blue, and yet the atmosphere so tempered by the sea-breezes as to prevent any feeling of oppressive heat. They marched rapidly among the winding shore of the Bay of Telcahueno, in order to gain the extremity of the parallel thirty miles south. No one spoke much the first day, for the smoke of the Duncan was still visible on the horizon, and the pain of parting too keenly felt. Paganel talked to himself in Spanish, asking and answering questions. The catapez, moreover, was a taciturn man naturally, and had not been rather rendered loquacious by his calling. He hardly spoke to his pans. They understood their duties perfectly. If one of the mules stopped, they urged it on with a guttural cry, and if that proved unavailing, a good-sized pebble, thrown with unerring aim, soon cured the animal's obstinacy. If a strap got loose or a rein fell, a peon came forward instantly, and throwing off his poncho, flung it over the beast's head till the accident was repaired and the march resumed. The custom of the muleteers is to start immediately after breakfast, about eight o'clock, and not stop till they camp for the night, about four p.m. Glenarvan fell in with the practice, and the first halt was just as they arrived at Araco situated at the very extremity of the bay, to find the extremity of this thirty-seventh degree of latitude. They could have required to proceed as far as the bay of Carnero, twenty-five miles further, but the agents of Glenarvan had already scoured that part of the coast, and to repeat the exploration would have been useless. It was, therefore, decided that Araco should be the point of departure and they should keep on from there toward the east in a straight line. Since the weather was so favorable, and the whole party, even Robert, were in perfect health, and altogether the journey had commenced under such favorable auspices, it was deemed advisable to push forward as quickly as possible. Accordingly, the next day they marched thirty-five miles or more, and encamped at nightfall on the banks of Rio Biobio. The country still presented the same fertile aspect, and abounded in flowers, but animals of any sort only came in sight occasionally, and there were no birds visible except a solitary heron, or owl, or a thrush, or grebe flying from the falcon. Human beings there were none, not a native appeared, not even one of the guassos, the degenerate offspring of Indians and Spaniards dashed across the plain like a shadow, his flying steed dripping with blood from the cruel thrusts inflicted by the gigantic spurs of his master's naked feet. It was absolutely impossible to make inquiries when there was no one to address, and Lord Glenarvan came to the conclusion that Captain Grant must have been dragged right over the Andes into the Pampas, and that it would be useless to search for him elsewhere. 
The only thing to be done was to wait patiently and press forward with all the speed in their power. On the 17th they set out in the usual line of march, a line which it was hard work for Robert to keep. His ardor constantly compelled him to get ahead of the madrina, to the great despair of his mule. Nothing but a sharp recall from Glenarvan kept the boy in proper order. The country now became more diversified, and the rising ground indicated their approach to a mountainous district. Rivers were more numerous, and came rushing noisily down the slopes. Paganel consulted his maps, and when he found any of those streams not marked, which often happened, all the fire of a geographer burned in his veins, and he would exclaim with a charming air of vexation, A river which hasn't a name is like having no civil standing, has no existence in the eye of geographical law. He christened them forthwith, without the least hesitation, and marked them down on the map, qualifying them with the most high-sounding adjectives he could find in the Spanish language. What a language, he said, how full and sonorous it is. It is like the metal church bells are made of, composed of seventy-eight parts of copper and twenty-two of tin. But, I say, do you make any progress in it? asked Glenarvan. Most certainly, my dear lord. Ah, if it wasn't the accent, that wretched accent! And for want of better work, Paganel whiled away the time along the road by practicing the difficulties in pronunciation, repeating all the break-jaw words he could, though still making geographical observations. Any questions about the country that Glenarvan might ask the catapes was sure to be answered by the learned Frenchman before he could reply, to the great astonishment of the guide, who gazed at him in bewilderment. About two o'clock that same day they came to a crossroad, and naturally enough Glenarvan inquired the name of it. It is the route from Jumbal to Los Angeles, said Paganel. Glenarvan looked at the catapes, who replied, Quite right. And then, toward turning toward the geographer, he added, "'You have travelled in these parts before, sir?' "'Oh, yes,' said Paganel, quite gravely. "'On a mule?' "'No, in an easy chair.' The catapez could not make him out, but shrugged his shoulders and resumed his post at the head of the party. At five in the evening they stopped in a gorge of no great depth, some miles above the little town of Loja, and encamped for the night, at the foot of the Sierras, the first steeps of the great Cordilleras. End of Book One, Chapter Eleven